Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is a titan of the entrepreneurial world. His name is Peter Roberts. He is a serial founder of companies spanning the property and leisure industries. These include resorts, hotels, nightclubs, pubs, and of course, health clubs. He famously founded the low-cost gym disruptor, Pure Gym, and more recently has turned his hand to mentoring young entrepreneurs. In my mind, Peter is a true visionary. And the hard thing about having someone like Peter on the podcast is choosing which topics to cover. So we focused on his experience in Pure Gym, uh, why he founded the company in the first place, the shifting sands of the industry, and what he'd learned about building teams and raising capital. We then moved on to discuss some of his more recent projects and what his mentees were up to. Peter was a superb guest. He's incredibly generous with his time. If you're a budding entrepreneur, you would do well to get in touch with Peter. If you have any questions on any of the topics that we cover in this episode today, then get in touch with us at waverton.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Peter Roberts, welcome to the podcast. Peter, how did you start your career? Interestingly enough, I started by coming out of Sarum Sister Agricultural College with a FRICS behind my name, went into doing rural estate agency in a place called Kirby Lonsdale in Cumbria, and developed that and actually became senior partner of that business relatively quickly. And it wasn't really until I developed along those lines that I started getting itchy feet and was starting to look around for what alternatives I could do. And so when you were looking around for alternatives, what made you think about entrepreneurial alternatives? Or was that part of the calculation? Were you thinking, hey, look, I want to go and do something on my own? Or or were you looking for another larger company to join? No, I think I realized that my remit was probably going to be doing something off my own bat, but with some support from people who, for some reason or other, were quite prepared to give me some cash to go off and do that. You know, I was very determined to do that. And I think looking back on my formative years, I lost my parents in when I was relatively young. And I think one of the things it, it taught me was I had to stand on my own two feet. I couldn't rely on other people to guide me forward. And I think I became driven by a desire to go out and do something off my own bat. So what was the first endeavor off your own bat? I started doing one or two things whilst I was still with my chart surveyors, as it were, sort of as a, as a byline. And that was really for me to cut my teeth and and understand a bit more what it was all about. So I got involved doing a pub business and a restaurant business, both of which were quite painful, but it taught me an awful lot. And I think um, formed a bit of a basis for where I was going to go from there. And well, let's wind forward. And we are going to talk about various, a number of your entrepreneurial ventures. One of the highlights was Pure Gym which you started in 2008. Why did you start Pure Gym and what problem were you trying to solve? Interestingly, I've actually done eight startups and eight exits. And I had just finished my seventh one, which was in the hotel 
industry. So I was slightly kicking my feet, I have to say. And I mean, no one ever believes this, but I met someone in a pub who said to me, have you heard of uh, low-cost gyms? Which I hadn't, although I had actually been a director of a, of a company, of a, a full-service gym before that. And when he spoke to me, this guy, for about a quarter of an hour, I thought, this is absolutely brilliant. And my big worry was, why has no one done it before? So I actually went off and spent some time in, in the States and Germany because there were no low-cost gyms in the UK to find out, did they really work? Why was it so good? And why it would be appropriate for the UK market? Because I think, as I said, the thing that really worried me was it had gone into Europe and, and was big in the States. Why on earth had no one done it in the UK? And as I became more involved, it was obvious. There was a fantastic opportunity there because all the existing, probably rather old-fashioned gym companies were operating on a basis of you still had to go to the gym to join up and have a tour. Uh, you had to have a full year's contract. You were paying, on average, 45 quid a month. And it was so old-fashioned and so ripe for disruption, it was actually a pretty easy sell to get a team of um, people who could uh, come forward and help us fund it. It sounds like it was a slightly clunky industry, particularly in the UK. What did you learn from your experiences then in Germany and in the US? And why do you think it took so long for the UK to catch up? The latter point, I still don't know. <laughs> it, it's always um, bugged me, this one. But the three obvious things were price. So as I said, the average price was 45 quid a month. We worked out and we started off at 9.99 a month. So that was incredibly disruptive. The key thing was having no contracts. So no one had to take more than a month's notice. They could come and go as they wished. And we also operated 24 hours a day, which no one else did. So there were three massive points there that made it almost a no-brainer for people to join us when they were suffering so much from what the competitors were doing. So in order to operate a model like that, presumably you had to take out a lot of cost relative to your peers. How did you tighten the belt, as it were, and what were the easy costs to get rid of? The first most obvious one was to integrate technology into it. So we did all our marketing online. There were no show runs at all. And on the operational side, it was automatic entry, so there was no reception desk or anything. And we operated, believe it or not, with only two employees. And when you think that we were averaging 5,500 members per club and managing this with two employees and a rather clever deal we had with the PTs, our base cost was tiny. And in fact, we got to a situation very quickly where as soon as the brand developed, we were selling enough memberships pre-opening so that we were cash flow positive in our first month of trading. And there's not many businesses which are tied into property that can say that you can do that. Yeah, that's insane. And uh, how long do you think it took for the competition to catch up? Because your pricing was a fraction of the 
fighting with your competitors. How did the competition react and how long were you able to play this pricing arbitrage? Interesting, a long time. And as a fascinating story is that uh, the person who became my COO was heading up Virgin at the time. And he tells a lovely story which uh, says that he, he went in and looked at our first unit in Manchester, went back to the chiefs of Virgin and said, we've got real problems here, you know. And they just turned around and said, don't be silly. It's a little startup company. They'll probably go bust in the next six months and just completely dismiss this. And, you know, frankly, this happened across the board until it worked out that we were pretty much responsible for the closing down of Fitness First and LA clubs who were in the mid-market. And we just took away all their trade. And by the time they then sat up and thought, what are we going to do about this? It was too late. You know, we grabbed, we went from being last in the overall membership numbers and size to first within about um, two and a half years. And by the time they'd reacted, it was too late to do anything because we'd, we'd got such a foothold on the market. So to experience that growth in two and a half years, you must have had the most extraordinary plate spinning exercise. How did you manage that growth? And how did you make those big capital allocations of where to put the next gym at the same time as growing and trying to keep the, the operations on track? I was very lucky to have a, a great board of people and good shareholders generally to support one. And one of the things that I had always been taught as a, as a younger entrepreneur was you must get your building blocks of people in place at an early stage. And they allowed us to do that. So we got in the best financial brains, we got in the best operating brains, the best marketing brains, and all those were in place before we really put our foot on the expansion pedal. And so that allowed me in particular, I suppose, in my property background. So I got together a property team and, you know, we went around the country all over the place. And as soon as we suddenly got recognized, whereas in the early days, no one would touch us. And then suddenly, and this is as landlords, then suddenly AXA, and Aviva took the plunge and said, right, we'll have these guys in. And they realized how well we were doing. Suddenly, everyone was knocking on our door, offering a site. So the expansion of those sites was, after year two, pretty straightforward. And, you know, we were up doing 25, 30 sites a year uh, and even more. And again, on capital terms, because we were cash flow positive, in month one, the money we had to raise was really down to the capex of the buildings, which was not cheap. It was over a million quid. But the cash flow was so strong that it was quite easy to get in various types of debt. So the amount of pure equity we had to raise was relatively small. Talk to me about raising that equity. Where did you start? Did you start with sort of friends and families and expand from there? Or did you go further down the institutional channel? No, we started off, and I always say this to all my entrepreneurs, do as much as you can on friends and families or angels, because they leave you alone. <laughs> They'll let you get on with the business. And especially with the benefit of EIS schemes, you know, people generally put their money in 
they'll let you go on. And I think you need that sort of freedom in your very early days. And our second, third round we did, we involved a family office who, again, were really good to deal with, very supportive, gave us, as I said, a lot of support along the line. And then when we really started accelerating and we needed more capital, we actually went to an American private equity firm. We went through a process, a proper process. Interestingly, they all dropped out one by one and we were only left with with the American guys. So it was an interesting game of having to play to um, try and make sure that they felt that they were still in a competitive situation. You know, we're very lucky. They were very supportive of, of us along the line. So all that was a great contribution to allowing us to, you know, keep up a, a very high rate of openings every year. And tell me, what was the big difference between seeking capital from US private equity people and perhaps, you know, less sophisticated angels and, and friends and family? It was always pretty easy. I mean, I suppose in terms of the angels, I, I was lucky in that, as I said, I'd at that stage done seven startups and seven exits, so all pretty successfully. And so two of the people that had helped me on the hotels and the nightclubs and the resort businesses were still with me. So we had a team there already. So it was relatively easy for people to say that we had something of a track record although we didn't know very much about gyms. And interestingly, getting the Americans was easier because, of course, they understood low-cost gyms because they were so well established in the, U- in the U.S. and they actually made money from Planet Fitness and the like before. Whereas the, the English private equity sort of dropped out and we were a bit nervous, we actually had two American companies in at the end. Well, that's um, good long-term capital to get once, I suppose, you've gone through those hoops. Moving back to the operations of Pure Gym, when you were managing it and when you were you know, experiencing that growth, did you have any other brands that you really looked up to and you wanted to emulate and they, you know, not necessarily in, in your sector? Yeah, I think we were, of course, looking at an early stage to be highly disruptive. And so I think the brands that we looked at changed slightly as we grew and our particular challenges changed. And I think we started off, interestingly, looking at EasyJet and Premier Inn, who, you know, both had gone into a marketplace which was dominated by large companies with a price point which was significantly greater than theirs. And they had taken on, obviously, in EasyJet's life, you know, they took on British Airways and a lot of other big people and did very well by offering real value at a low cost. So I think that was really important, looking how they'd done that. And then as as things changed of how you roll out very quickly, how you build the culture in the business, how you do the operational side. I think one of the companies there we really liked was Pret, and we had quite a lot of conversations with them. And of course, they were, you know, rolling out their shops very quickly and having to go through uh, all the challenges of bringing on a, a, both a senior and a junior management team very quickly. So. 
we learned a lot from them. And I think sort of towards the end, the likes of the Airbnb, uh, again, you know, we were just sort of fascinated, I think, by their ability to enter a pretty mature and regulated business and severely disrupt it pretty quickly. All helped us work how we were going to take ours through to its ultimate, where we made an exit. And talk to me about the exit. So you got to late 2017, you'd had, you'd built up 180 gyms and you sold out to an American private equity firm. Now, what was the A, difference in lifestyle once you sold and B, how hard was it to say goodbye to a gym that you had bought your heart and soul into? Interestingly, not too difficult. I had, I think, a true on. Well, it's slightly different things, but I think there's not that many true entrepreneurs who are good at the sort of management structure and organisation of taking a big company forward. And in my case. Whilst I was very lucky to have support of a fantastic management team and board, I realized that this really wasn't for me. I didn't have those capabilities, and I got my kicks out of startups and, and helping you know young people move forward. So a bit of great advice I had was get your uh, successor in place in really good time. So I got hold of uh, someone called Humphrey Cobbold, 18 months before we exited, so that when the time came to exit, I was able to say there's someone been here 18 months who knows the business completely and it will go on. And he has significantly better management capabilities than I do of taking this forward from 180 gyms to which I think now with, you know, the overseas purchases and everything is, is well over 300. It's a completely different process. So I decided after that that I actually wanted to go and help impart some of the knowledge I gathered over many, many years to help young entrepreneurs because you learn an awful lot and you learn, it's a hackneyed phrase, but you learn an awful lot from your mistakes. And I think a lot of the young entrepreneurs don't necessarily see that in their early stages. Well, let's just pause there then on, and think about your mistakes. Can you highlight any that you reflect on positively now with hindsight? And what experiences and mistakes in your formative years have helped shape you now, help you make better decisions now? When I look back, you know, I couldn't read a balance sheet. I didn't really know much about finance. I sort of jumped into these things and... What I did learn fairly quickly is having a solid partner or partners around you in your team, it was so important. When I think back, for example, in my Langdale days when I was developing a, a timeshare there, I got a brilliant guy in who helped with the marketing side and he was absolutely fantastic and I couldn't have done it without it. And I always say, to people that you've got to brace a broad knowledge out there because you won't have it all yourself. And I did learn that by bringing other people alongside me and indeed having your own mentors is really important. 
you can't do it all yourself, to be honest, you know, and you should be concentrating on the things that you're good at. I was lucky but by having these people around me that where, when and where I made the mistakes, I was able to either get out of them or, you know, minimize the uh, disruption that they actually caused. I know, Peter, you are a keen mentor. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the entrepreneurial activity that some of your mentees are, that's the right word, are operating at the moment. Yeah, um, believe it or not, I'm sort of involved with 12 different businesses at the moment. And (laughs) they're in all sorts of different areas. And one of the reasons people very often say, well, why have you done this? It comes back to the point of, I think you can establish relatively easily if the business plan is in the right area in terms of product or service or whatever it is. And you can establish whether the people concerned do know about that particular business. Because what they, I do know, they don't know is what happens in the big wide world. And very often, they're so immersed in running their businesses that they don't understand what else happens. So whether it's fundraising, strategic decisions, getting the right sort of management team in place, all those are issues that you can help without necessarily having a great depth of knowledge yourself of what their business is. And just to give you a little flavor of the range of, of some of the things I'm in is that One I'm deeply involved in is a children's activity business which called Gymfinity Kids, where we're opening nurseries and really state-of-the-art gymnastics facilities for children, absolutely hammered by COVID, of course, and we've been shut for 10 out of the last 12 months. But basically, a really good business. It's got a lot of my old team in it from PG, and... We're back in the process that we were in the old days, so we're fundraising now. Looks very strong. It's completely unique. No one else is doing it. So that, I think, has great promise, albeit the fact that we were were hit very hard. There's another one which is a very good example of real entrepreneurial spirit. There's two uh, young guys who developed an interesting snack nut product, which they were selling into pubs pre-COVID beginning to do really well. COVID, of course, completely hit them because the pubs were shut. And with that, they turned around and approached all the the beer people who have, you know, cast beers and that um, you can only buy in, in cans. And they packaged together these and sold them online with their nuts to people just by working the social media channels. And in December, their first year doing this, they turned over a million quid. And that was just brilliant because I think most people would have gone bust and they just changed the whole thing around amazingly. Another one is a medical company who, where again, I, I've got an involvement with Newcastle University. And this was someone who came out of there. And this guy has found a way, or we're well advanced of finding a way of curing sepsis or identifying sepsis at least so that it can be cured. This is an enormous market. Again, a guy who's a scientist 
doesn't really know much else of what's going on. So we're looking at fundraising there at the moment, which he's completely out of his depth, all the legals you have to go through, etc. But potentially a very exciting, but quite scary because it's very much uh, an unknown product. It's been a, a bumpy ride and will probably continue, but the prices at the end are, are enormous. And another company I involved with coming out of Newcastle University, two very bright scousers who started off a business called Castor doing sports clothing, athletic sports clothing. You may have read about them. They have just going like a train. Uh, I'm sure breaking most of the rules, uh, but making phenomenal progress. And I think in their next year, after only two years operating, they'll they'll be turning over a hundred million, and are de- absolutely determined, and a really good example of people who have got it all, and perhaps don't listen as much as they should to their mentors, but they're <laughs> pulling you up though on your second example, the two guys making stacks, and I think this is so interesting how the lockdown of about past twelve months has really tested the mettle of some of these entrepreneurs, and it makes me reflect. On another podcast guest I had, another entrepreneur who's a founder of a restaurant chain, Cricket, is sort of a flat bearer for sort of hugger-mugger dining, you know, not suitable for COVID. And lockdown happened. Basically, you know, all of their, their revenue went to zero. They managed to pivot their business almost 360 degrees, opened a number of so-called cloud kitchens, and have actually had record months selling essentially online by delivery. So I wonder, the question is, is this sort of testing entrepreneurs and working out how resilient they are dealing with some of these challenges such as lockdown? Yeah, I'm amazed how, as I said, nearly all the ones I've been involved with have actually adapted and changed so well. It's about, I think it's, you know, my views on investing, whoever it is, I think it's sort of 80, 90% about the people, about the management team. It sounds a bit flippant to say this, but I think the product, you know, the product and the service you can work out. It's how those management teams perform when things go wrong, because they do go wrong. And I've been really heartened and amazed by how quickly and how you know, they were inspired enough to not um, fold in and just say, let's get on and think of a way we can get around this. And I think there's lots and lots of examples. And I think it says a lot about UK entrepreneurialism because I think it's out there and it, it's, it really is fantastic. And they're all, young, you know, all the people I agree with, they're, they're in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. So they haven't had a lot of experience, but... They're very passionate about what they want to do. And what do you think, on the flip side of that, what are the biggest mistakes that you see you know, particularly young entrepreneurs making and what working patterns that are probably to be avoided if you are starting out as an entrepreneur? I mean, I think for the ones who um, are really motoring, almost going too hard, it's, you know, they don't look at what else is going on outside. You know, they think they can walk on water, some of them. I think for the ones who maybe aren't quite so sure about what they're doing, it's the ability to actually listen. I think taking on mentors 
I wouldn't say that for myself, but I think taking on mentors and having the ability to listen to other people is really important. And I do think that there are certain areas of discipline that they don't like doing, but they have to do. I mean, some of it's pretty simple, you know, monthly management accounts, you know, cash flow projections, having regular board meetings, all this sort of thing. Most of the ones I go into, they don't have that. You know, they haven't had that experience. So whilst they can concentrate on their business, they don't necessarily have the ability to uh, look at other things going on in the world. And can we just focus, just going back to a point you raised earlier, can we focus on your your duo from Newcastle University making gymwear? Because it sounds not dissimilar to Gymshark, which you know famously yeah. um, raised an obscene amount of money recently. What do you see as the sort of addressable market for that business? And what are the market dynamics of gymwear? Because it does seem to me like it has exploded. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think they've, you asked me the question who they've set, you know, set your sights on. I think they've set their sights on overtaking Gymshark. They're not in the same area, to be precise. But these were two lads who were, I think, one case footballer and the second was a cricketer. And they thought they could make the top and they weren't able to make the top. And so they decided the next best thing was going to a business that was associated with those sports. And that's how they developed it. They have phenomenal ambition of setting out in, um, I suppose, to take over, not take over, but to do rather better than the Nikes and the Adidases and the Under Armors of this world. And it's interesting that they have recently got a really good deal with Rangers Football Club and Wolves and McLaren and an Australian lot and Andy Murray. They've all done that inside the last year. And, you know, they've just had the balls, frankly, to go out and push and present themselves as being a lot more active, proactive, passionate about what they're doing than some of their larger peers. And as I said, the way that they are progressing, touch wood, as long as they don't completely go off track, is that it looks like a very exciting future. The Issa brothers have just recently gone in and taken investment in them. <laughs> Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. <laughs> Impressive. And um, then if we're thinking directly, if you're trying to give advice to these young entrepreneurs starting out, we've talked about some pitfalls, we've talked about some attributes that are positive. What advice would you give to a young graduate or indeed a sort of junior sort of associate or analyst who maybe is, is working in a job as you were back in the 80s and wants to go and do something entrepreneurial? What advice would you give to them, direct advice? I think you, well, th there's the obvious stuff like the research and sort of paperwork you've got to do behind the scenes before you do it is really, really important. And you can never be too thorough on that. And that means looking at your competition. Is there a real market here? How am I going to raise the money? Those sort of issues. But coming back to something I said, I think one of the most important things is having someone alongside you. Doing this all on your own is pretty hard work. It is really taxing. And I think 
and I'm intrigued that of the, of the 12 lots that I'm with now, there's all, except for one, I think, someone alongside them with another discipline that they don't have. So as a partnership, they're driving their businesses forward in a much more meaningful manner, I think. And I, I would still think that is the singularly most important thing, apart from the, the obvious stuff that you have to do starting up any business. Peter Roberts, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Peter Roberts. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, then why not like us and let a friend or colleague know? Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.